All right. Um, welcome, everyone. It's uh, great to have you all here to celebrate Sustainability Day here at Moraine Valley Community College with us, and also to support the Democracy Commitment. Uh, the Democracy Commitment is a national initiative providing a platform for the development and expansion of community college programs, projects, and curricula, aiming at engaging students in civic learning and democratic practice across the country. Uh, Moraine Valley signed on to this initiative about two years ago. The goal of the democracy commitment is that every graduate of an American community college shall have had an education in democracy. This includes all of our students, whether they aim to transfer to a university, achieve an associate's degree, or obtain a certificate. Our panel presentation today is focused on food, food, uh, food and the politics of food, and building sustainable communities through food. What's democracy got to do with it, you ask? Well, our guests today, local farmers and activists, will, will talk about their work on the farms and how that work is a vital part of connecting us to the earth and ultimately to the larger community. Uh, we have two guest speakers today, Chris Foss from Angelic Organics Farm and Beth Osmond from Cedar Valley Sustainable Farm. Chris Foss is the growing farm manager at Angelic Organics Farm in Caledonia, Illinois. The farm is a community-supported agriculture, or what we call a CSA farm, that is certified organic and utilizes biodynamic practices to produce vegetables for roughly 1,600 families in the Chicago and Rockford area. Prior to coming to Angelic Organics Farm, Chris worked for 13 plus years as a senior manager at a Fortune 500 company. This transition from corporate America to farming was one of choice. He simply endeavored to work in a way that better nourished both himself and others in the world around him. Chris views this nourishment not just from a physical sustenance standpoint, but also from being able to reconnect with people, with the land, the farm, and the people that grow the food. It is this building and fostering of community that is his true passion. In 2002, Beth Osman of Cedar Valley Sustainable Farm and her husband Jody left corporate jobs and moved their family from the Chicago suburbs to rural Ottawa to start Cedar Valley Sustainable Farm as a vegetable CSA. They added livestock over the years. In 2007, they began selling meat at farmers markets and introduced the first meat CSA to Illinois, uh, serving the Chicagoland area. The Osmonds are active in agricultural policy, farmer education, and community building. Before we hear from our uh, guest, I'd like to read an excerpt from food writer and environmentalist Michael Pollan's essay, Why Bother, published in 2008. In his essay, he talks about the huge, overwhelming problem of global warming and what we can do as individuals to contribute to creating a sustainable environment for ourselves and for future generations. It is surprising, given the magnitude of the environmental problems we face, that his answer is to plant a garden. He says, grow a green bean. In his essay, he writes, why bother? That really is the big question facing us as individuals hoping to do something about climate change. And it's not an easy one to answer. But the act I want to talk about is growing some, even just a little, of your own food. Rip out your lawn if you have one. And if you don't, if you live in a high rise or have a yard shrouded in shade, look into getting a plot in a community garden. Measured against the problems we face, planting a garden sounds pretty benign, I know. But in fact, it's one of the most, most powerful things an individual can do to reduce your carbon footprint, sure, but more important, to reduce your sense of dependence and dividedness, to change the cheap energy mind. But there are sweeter reasons to plant the garden, to bother. 
At least in this one corner of your yard in life, you have begun to heal the split between what you think and what you do to commingle your identities as consumer, producer, and citizen. Chances are your garden will re-engage you with your neighbors, for you will have produce to give away and need to borrow their tools. The single greatest lesson the garden teaches is that our relationship to the planet need not be zero-sum, and that as long as the sun still shines and people still can plan and plant and think and do, we can, if we bother to try, find ways to provide for ourselves without diminishing the world. So growing food doesn't have to diminish the environment. It should be a natural process, a natural system that works in harmony with people, um, with the animals, and with the environment around us. Farmers aren't the only ones who realize this. People on all levels of our society are beginning to realize the importance of sustainable food systems. And the food movement is taking hold of average everyday citizens, as well as some unlikely characters. Take a look at this short video. speaker today is Chris Foss from Angelic Organics. Is that for me? Perfect. Yes, yeah, the second time <clears throat> that I've seen that video. Um, and I find the, um, the, where they have the factory poultry or the factory poultry, factory pork farm. It kind of looks like a, like a parking garage, and they're kind of 
pumping the pigs out of it. Even though it's cartoonish, it even feels more horrific because it is in a cartoon form. Um, so as Tamara said, my name is Chris Foss. Um, I am the uh, growing manager slash farm manager for Angelic Organics Farm. Um, first, I guess I want to say thank you very, very much for inviting me. Um, uh, my agenda for today is to tell you a little bit about my story, what brought me into farming, um, tell you a little bit about, uh, about our farm, about Angelic Organics Farm, um, and then try and wrap that into what we do and um, how it comes into play with um, food and the democracy of food, as you could call it, um, and sustainability. So I hope you don't mind. I hope it's not too distracting, but I like to walk around when I talk. Um, so you'll have to keep pacing with me. Um, I'm relatively new to farming, um, very new to farming. You could say I'm green. Um, prior to coming on board with Angelic Organics Farm, I had no farming experience whatsoever. Um, my, the only connection that I have, um, hereditary, hereditary connection, was my great-grandparents had a dairy farm in Delavan, Wisconsin. Um, a not very successful dairy farm in Delavan, Wisconsin, um, that I never saw, that I never had the opportunity to see. Um, as Tamara said, I came to Angelic Organics after working for about 13 and a half years uh, at a Fortune 500 company. Um, I was a senior manager and I was the purchasing manager for two separate locations um, of, this, of this company. Um, I made really, really good money. I made well over $100,000 every single year. It was great, $100,000 every single year. Um, but I wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy. I wasn't satisfied. Um, I have two young daughters. Um, one, are, one is nine and the other is 15 now. Um, and the story that I tell is that I, I make a point of telling them that wherever they go in their life, um, whether it is to their friend's house or to their grandparents' house um, or any place in the world, it's important to make it a better place. It's important to leave it better than what you found it. Maybe that means cleaning up your friend's bedroom. I don't know. Just leave the place better than, what, than how you found it. Um, from, a, from a macro perspective, that means leaving the world better than you found it. And I really wasn't practicing what I preached. I wasn't making the world any better. Um, so I resigned. I resigned. I had no idea whatsoever what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I just knew I needed to do something that would make the world better. I knew I needed to do something that fulfilled me, um, that kind of filled me up. I knew what I was doing wasn't that. Um, so I took about a year and a half off um, and tried to figure out what that was. Um, I love doing stuff outside. I love growing things. I do have a garden, Michael. Um, not anymore. I don't have as much time anymore to do gardening. Um, but I enjoy doing things with my hand. And so I called a friend of mine who worked at the Learning Center, which is the nonprofit ex um, extension of our farm, and said, her name is, um, is Joanne. And I said, Joanne, you know, I, think, I think I'd like to get into farming. Um, am I crazy? At that point in time, I was about 38 years old. I'm almost 40, and I think I want to get into farming. She's like, no, that's great. It's a lot of hard work. You're going to be really, really tired, but that's great. And so I said, all right, great, I'll do that. 
So I hired on and um, for the first season worked with the farm team. Did the weeding, um, did the planting, harvesting, seeding, sowing, transplanting, um, all of the fun activities that you get to do with a farm team, all the very physical things you get to do with a farm team, regardless of weather conditions. The one thing about working in a farm um, that I'm sure Beth would, would reiterate is that it doesn't matter what weather conditions are outside. The plants don't stop growing. The animals don't stop needing food or needing to be milked. You just got to do it. So you suck it up and do it. So working on a farm team is, is, was exactly the type of gratifying, fulfilling experience that I needed. I live about an hour from the farm. Um, so every day when we would start, or even, to, even this season when we start at 6, I would get to the farm at 5, which means, like all of you, I get up at 4. And then I go home, and I get home at about 6.30. So during the season, it's very, very taxing. But it's the best night's sleep I have ever, ever, ever had, knowing that I'm growing food for people, knowing that what I am doing is fulfilling them, not only from a nutrition standpoint, not only from it's making their bellies full, um, but hopefully in some small way, it is fulfilling some sort of spiritual need for them. Um, so after that first season working on the farm team, um, the owner, John Peterson, um, who has a very, very good documentary. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. I'll do a quick plug. It's called The Real Dirt on Farmer John. Um, Siskel and Ebert gave it thumbs up. Um, but it's a very, very good documentary on the farm. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Um, so he pulled me aside after the season and said, look, I think your skill sets aren't being best suited by the farm. I think you could probably do a little bit more. Um, and I said, okay. He said, how'd you think about being the growing manager? I've done one season <laughs> and you want me to run, you want me to be the growing manager on the farm? I don't know that that, that is my skill set. He said, no, look, I'll be around. I can help you. You really have a way with people. You are able to keep morale up. Um, people had fun working with you. And that's really what the farm needs needs for people to have fun, needs for people to gravitate towards the work and experience uh, a fun, enjoyable working environment. So I said, okay, that's fine, let's do it. Um, so I've been the growing manager for about three years. The farm itself is on about 100 acres in Caledonia, Illinois, which is about 25 miles north of Rockford, um, just south of the Wisconsin border. Um, we are almost an exclusively CSA vegetable farm. Um, our shareholders, which we have about 1,600 shareholders that we supply vegetables for every single week during the harvest season. Um, they're primarily in Chicago and the Rockford area. Um, so 1,600 families, we provide a three-quarter bushel box full of local fresh vegetables every single week. Um, during, through the months of June, the middle of June to the end of October. Uh, and then we have four additional weeks that people can add on for November. We do all of that, all of those vegetables, on 30 acres. 30 acres is all that we grow vegetables on. So we have 100 acres for the farm. 60 acres are tillable, are in production. 20 are, or, sorry, 30 are vegetables. The other 30 are in cover crop, which is the way that we provide fertility back into the ground. Because we're an organic farm, we're a certified organic farm, we don't apply any sort of synthetic fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides. Um, all of our fertility in our soil 
is maintained through the application of composted manure and through cover cropping. So our crops will stay in, the, in fields for two years and then those fields will go fallow or at rest for two years. Um, the farm is also bio, a biodynamic farm, um, which biodynamics is an approach to farming where you think of the farm as an entire organism, no different than us. And as an organism, you want to meet the needs of, of all of the needs of that organism, from ecological needs to fertility and soil needs to livestock needs. Um, so the farm is really kind of, it takes a holistic approach to how we are growing our vegetables. Um, Attached to the farm is the Angelic Organics Learning Center, um, which is the nonprofit organization uh, that does primarily three things. First, it introduces people who aren't necessarily involved in farming. It tries to bring them back onto the farm through hosting a variety of different programs on the farm, whether it's goat milk, um, soap making, um, learning how to take care of honeybees, whatever, almost every single week of the year, uh, every single week of the season, I should say, there are programs going on at the Learning Center to kind of get people back involved in farming and the kind of the tasks of sustainability. The second thing they do is they provide farmer training. So people who have crazy ideas and have this dream that they want to become, they want to have their own farm, um, they have training that can teach people what, how to do that, what the pitfalls are, um, what the obstacles are, um, and hopefully have, help them to realize that dream of owning their own farm in whatever capacity that is. And the third initiative of the Angelic Organics Learning Center is in urban agriculture. Um, it works primarily in Rockford and in Chicago um, and helps urban youth as well as underprivileged or lower income families really build gardens and help to create community. One of the most um, one of the, the things that I most gravitate towards in the job that I have um, is in building community, is in getting people back to the farm, getting people to experience and know where they're getting their food from. It's hard to do that with 1,600 families in and around the Chicagoland area. We're a two and a half hour drive uh, to come to see our farm. But Two times a year during open houses, we'll have 300 plus families come out to come visit the farm. Those are the most invigorating days that I have, some of the most invigorating days that I have throughout the course of the year. Because you get to see parents, you get to see kids, you get to see people interact with a farm. People who don't normally get to do that. You get to see people who don't know each other bring potluck dishes to the farm uh, and sit at a table together and get to know each other because they share some similarity of wanting local, organic, fresh produce that's, that's filled with, with nutrients, that's good for them. Um, connecting people to a farm, getting people to know where they get their, fruit, their food from is one of the things that is most important in the role that I do. And quite frankly, it's one of the reasons I came here. Um, it is critically important that we get back to where we were in some small way 50, 60 years ago, when you knew where you got your milk from, when you knew where you got your vegetables from, or where you got your meat from. We've become this culture <clears throat> of convenience, 
of um, we've got so much going on, and it's easier just not to. When the farm started as a CSA back in 1993, it was one of the first, if not the first in Chicago, it was one of the first in Illinois um, to offer vegetables as a vegetable CSA. When we did so, it, we were really the only game in town. I mean, in, in 93, you didn't really have many other organic options. Um, so it was able to build that, um, to build our subscriber rate, our shareholder rate, pretty quickly and easy. If you wanted organic vegetables, you typically subscribe to a CSA, or you knew a local farmer. Farmers markets weren't that prevalent back then. They're becoming much more prevalent now, which is fantastic. Um, but if you wanted to, to get organic produce, you knew the farmer or you got a CSA. Now, you can get organic produce at Walmart. It wouldn't surprise me if 7-Eleven starts having some sort of organic produce available to people. Um, but all that organic produce is produced out in California. It's not produced here. It's not produced locally. It's produced out in large commercial, at least organic, facilities, um, but then it's shipped all the way back here. So I know both Beth and I <laughs> have some homework assignments for you guys, because I got to hear Beth speak earlier. Um, so here's my homework assignment for you. And you're probably not going to be able to do it this year, because it's kind of getting towards the end of the, se end of the, the season, at least for the things that I'm going to tell you, challenge you to do. Um, I want you to do two things for me. And maybe there'll be a third thing if I can think of a third thing. But I want you next year, if you don't grow it yourself, I want you to find a farm that grows two things. One is tomatoes. And they're two very, very easy things to find. One is tomatoes and one is sweet corn. <laughs> It won't be that hard to find farms that do it. And if you want, after we're done here, um, come over and see me, and I'll um, I'll give you my email address. And you know, you just email me next year and say, hey, I'm going to come out to the farm. I need to have some tomatoes and sweet corn, and I'll tell you when to come. Um, but I want you to taste a tomato and a sweet corn that's fresh right off the plant, right off the vine and see what it does, see how it tastes, see how it makes you feel. I will guarantee you, guarantee you, that 90% of you, nine out of 10 of you, um, it will be one of the best experiences you've ever had. They'll both be raw. I don't care if you don't like tomatoes and sweet corn. I, trust me, I think you'll like it. It'll be okay, unless you're allergic to it. But it'll be the best experience you have had with that food in your entire eating experience. To taste a tomato that is ripened on the vine and hasn't been ripened artificially. When you get the stuff in Walmart, what they do is pick it when it's green, put it in this container, they pump ethylene in there to, to artificially ripen it, and then put it in, the, um, in Walmart as organic. Um, it doesn't taste the same. It's just not the same. So have one that's ripened on the vine. Come, go to a farm Go to a farmer's market, meet somebody, know the person that grows it, and have it. Sweet corn is the exact same way. 
I will guarantee you, it will be, if you take an ear of sweet corn directly off the, off the stalk, husk it, eat it raw, it will taste the sweetest, without any butter, without any salt, it will be the best sweet corn you have ever, ever, ever had. You'll be eating raw sweet corn, and it'll be the best sweet corn you've ever had. You won't need to boil it. It'll be incredible. That's what eating fresh and local is. That's what eating is supposed to be like. Not the convenient stuff that's just cheaper and easier to get. Unfortunately, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was, when I was driving home from work. Um, thinking about the questions that Tamara sent out to you guys um, and just the general topic of discussion, democracy and food and sustainability. Um, so democracy, one of the ways I think of democracy is a, is a choice. And we always have a choice. Unfortunately, when it comes to eating, the scales of that choice have been tipped a little, a little too much not in our favor. They've been tipped in favor of convenience. They've been tipped in favor of um, providing food that has been produced using government subsidies from the Farm Bill um, that are really, really inexpensive. How much sense does it make that you can buy a hamburger for like 50 cents, 60 cents? That's outrageous. How does it happen? because of subsidies, because of the farm bill. Good food, real good food that nourishes you isn't cheap. It's not. It's expensive to raise good food that's healthy, nutritious, full of nutrients. It's expensive. Not exorbitantly so, but it's expensive. Why not subsidize that? Why not make that easier for people to, to get? easier for people to produce. Um, so the third thing, and I need to kind of wrap up so that Beth can come, come, can come up here. Um, the third thing is make your decision about what you eat matter. Because it does matter. So it's not always possible to get involved in a CSA. It's not always possible to um, go and um, buy half a, half a pig or half a cow. It's expensive. Um, but make the decisions that you make when it comes to food matter. And if you, do, if you can do anything to know where that food comes from, how it was produced, you're making a difference. You truly are making a difference. And now is really a time when you can make a difference. So um, again, thank you very, very much for the opportunity to come and speak. Um, and I will pass it along. Uh, this afternoon is uh, Beth Osmond from Cedar Valley uh, Sustainable Farm. Thank you. Um, 
Cedar Valley Sustainable is, um, essentially it's my husband and I. We're, no we're, we're nowhere near the scale of Angelic Organic. Um, although we are privileged to work with them in their learning center, um, we are really truly a small family farm. We also came from corporate careers in 2003. We started our farm and we began as a vegetable CSA and we so slowly transitioned to livestock and meat. Um, I like to joke that I love the meat CSA because I've never once had to weed my freezer. Um, that was, a, you know, the labor is, is very different in a meat operation than a vegetable. But we do raise our meat. We raise beef, pork, chicken, and eggs. Um, we provide that meat to families in and around the Chicagoland area. We have, all of our meat is drug and hormone free. And while we're not organic certified, we do make sustainable choices. And we've chosen along the continuum that we're where it's right for us to be now. Um, in addition to being farmers and parents to three very active boys, which would be enough really for most sane people, um, Jody and I are both passionate advocates for sustainable local food. Um, Jody has served on the Governor's uh, Food Farms and Jobs Council. We've both served as grant readers for various organizations, helping other farmers to establish their, their operation. Uh, I will soon be taking up a post on the board of Slow Food Chicago which, quick plug for that organization, if you're not familiar with it, Google it, Slow Food Chicago, check it out. It's a fantastic international organization that advocates for good, clean, and fair food for all. And we do it through the pleasure of food, the joy of food, not the guilt of you're doing it wrong, but the joy of it's so much better if you do it well. So in addition to those, uh, advocacy um, roles, we farm. We, we raise the animals, we manage the database, we deliver the shares, and we didn't become farmers because we were food activists, but we did become food activists because we're farmers. Because we are so deeply involved in the food system on a daily basis that we've had the opportunity to see how important it is. It's important because the choices that we make affect the world that we live in. I'm going to share a Michael Pollan quote as well. Eating is an agricultural act, as Wendell Berry famously said. It's also an ecological act and a political act, too. Though much has been done to obscure this simple fact, how and what we eat determines to a great extent what use we make of the world and what is to become of it. To eat with a fuller consciousness of all that is at stake might sound like a burden, but in practice, few things in life can afford as much satisfaction. Eating well is challenging. I'm not going to tell you it isn't. As Chris said, it can be more expensive. But you have to consider that that expense is upfront in eating good, healthy food. But 
you may very well be avoiding expenses down the road, treating health problems or, or environmental problems that need to be cleaned up because of the industrial food system that we're creating here in the US. And we are creating it, by the way. There's lots of government policies that have been made. There are lots of big, overwhelming things that have happened that no one of us have chosen. But we are creating our food system every time we sit down for a meal. We're making choices that create that system. And any one choice, any one green bean, isn't going to change the course of the food system. But those choices in aggregate, little choice on top of little choice, will turn that ship. It will make the changes that we want to see. And like Chris said, that's what democracy is about. It's making changes, it's making choices. Those small incremental changes that each of us can make, make a difference. Sustainability isn't just about the way your food was raised, although that's a huge part of it. It's also about making choices that you can sustain in your life. Cook a little bit more. Garden if you don't. Even if it's just one pot, grow some herbs, grow a tomato. Know how your food was raised, where it was raised, who raised it. Farmers are kind of cool people, by the way. We're, we're pretty interesting to get to know. So get to know us. Join a CSA. And I realize um, that this, we've, been we've been tossing these, the term CSA around, and I'm not sure everyone is familiar with it. Just real quickly, community-supported agriculture is at its heart a partnership between the farmer and the eater. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship because you, as an eater, get to know where your food comes from and how it was raised and by whom. And we, as farmers, have a business model that allows us to plan for the future. Because in a CSA, members join the farm. They commit to the farm for a period of time. In a vegetable CSA, it's typically for a growing season, June through October. A meat CSA, Ours is set up a little bit differently, but we ask that members commit for a minimum of three months at a time. And that lets us plan ahead. Because that food, those animals, all of that labor needs to happen before it ever comes to your plate. So by paying ahead, even though that's a different way to buy your groceries, by paying ahead and making that commitment to your farmer, you've allowed them to make that investment in raising the food. And we do both. We do primarily CSA. We also do farmer's markets. We do a retail. And farmer's markets are great, and we enjoy them. And I love to get to meet lots of people. It's an advantage of a farmer's market. You get to see people every week. But if it happens to be cold and rainy on a particular Sunday, um, my sales can be half of what they normally would be. If there's a big parade in Chicago, or there's an air and water show, or any one of a 1,000 factors that affects the traffic at the farmer's market that week affects my sales, affects my income, my profit for that week. And we accept that and we build that into our system. But the CSA members, they're the core of our business. They're the heart of our business because they commit to us and we commit to them over the long haul. And that community is a really, really important part of what we do. We love getting to know our members. We love knowing the people who eat our food. 
You know, you hear a lot like, know your farmer. I, I, whenever I get a chance to stand up and talk to a group of farmers, I always say, know your eaters. Because you'll treat your food differently. You'll do things differently if you're feeding Hazel, who's six years old and whose mom has been buying your meat since she was born. You'll do things differently than if you're just shipping it off to the Tyson plant and it's going into you know, a nameless, faceless entity. It, it makes a difference for farmers and for consumers. So by all means, get to know your farmers. Um, so make those small changes. I challenge you to make one small change. Cook more. You learn to cook with whole ingredients, with real food. I certainly, certainly would, would advocate for buying that food from a local source, from a sustainable farm, from an organic, local, sustainable farm. Those are wonderful. But even before that, even if you can't do that yet, buy a whole carrot. Learn what to do with it. Buy a roast. It's not rocket science. Cooking is such a lost art. It breaks my heart because it takes time, but there's also a real pleasure in it. Um, another of my favorite authors, Barbara Kingsolver, says in her book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, that eating is one of the, the, the one place in our lives where the pleasurable and the moral or the virtuous choice are the same. You know, there's so many places where what's pleasurable might not be the smartest decision for our health or our well-being or whatever. But eating, the more virtuous it is, the more pleasurable it is. Because if you've made that food, you've made it part of your family, you've made it, made it along with your friends, you... Better yet, you know where it comes from, and you've made ethical choices for where you're buying your food. Even just one meal a week makes a difference. So don't feel like because you're busy, and you're students, and you have families, and you have jobs, and you have all of these things going on, because we all do, well, I can't do that. I'll do that sometime in the future, you know, when I get settled, when I whatever. Do it now. Do it for one meal a week, and then do it for one more. Because all of those little changes aggregate. And if everyone here, if everyone that was here earlier, if everyone on campus makes those small changes, those small commitments, then we will, as a society, as a democracy, build the food system that we want to see. Finally, another challenge for you. And this is a slightly off topic of my farm or, or the, uh, the presentation I had originally planned to give, but it's an excellent tie-in to your democracy project. Right now, there is an, a public comment period for the Food Safety Modernization Act. It's, an, it's a, a bill that was passed a couple of years ago by Congress, and it sounds great, right? Who doesn't want food safety and modernization? I do. That sounds, yeah, that sounds good. But like many of the things that we see coming through the government, what it sounds like and what it is are not necessarily the same thing. Um, Congress passed this bill. The FDA is in charge of implementing it. And they have written a set of rules in order to implement the intent of this bill. Right now, those rules are, are open for public comment through, I believe, November 15th. Sometime in mid-November, the public comment period closes. The rules as they're written now will be hugely burdensome and possibly the death knell for many small, local, sustainable, organic farms. Um, 
They're very much, they very much favor the large-scale industrial agriculture. Um, and I'm not saying that small farms should be held to different standards, but there needs, I, I firmly believe that there needs to be scale-appropriate rules in, in any situation, but in particularly in this one, it hits pretty close to home for me. So write this down. I want you to Google Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, FSMA. There's a five-minute video on YouTube. Watch that video. It will give you just the briefest of overviews of why this is important and why, as a citizen of our democracy, I'm asking that you make your voice heard. I want you to make your voice heard indirectly by making choices, by changing the choices or improving the choices of the food that you're eating, um, by getting to know your farms, getting to know where your food is coming from, and being more committed to that. But in this case, I ask that you make your voice heard directly in our democracy by taking a few minutes to comment on the concerns raised in this video about the Food Safety Modernization Act. It really is critical for all of us who are working to bring human-scale, sustainable, organic agriculture to the eaters of our, of our country. So, thank you. Okay, thank you, Beth. Give both of our speakers a last round of applause. Um, we're going to have the speakers here on stage, and I'll come around with a microphone for you to ask any questions that you have regarding food, how they work, their experiences, policies. Of course, it's all the way in the back. Right? Hello. Um, I, <laughs> I'm Tina Bell, and I was just wondering how you process, or do you process the meat? So what do you mean when you say half a pig or half a cow, or what does that mean? Um, kind of a two-part question. Um, first of all, all our meat is, is processed and butchered at USDA-inspected facilities. Um, we don't do it on farm. We take it to a professional. Um, our, our beef and pork are processed in Eureka, Illinois. And our chicken is currently processed in Arthur, although, fingers crossed, we might be getting a processing plant a half hour from me. It'll take my drive from three and a half hours to a half an hour. So anyway. Um, so it's butchered and cut and packaged in similar ways that you would see it in the grocery store if you buy from us um, through our CSA or at a farmer's market. Um, we also offer custom butchered meat where Consumers can buy half a pig or a quarter beef or a half a beef or, or whatever. And in that case, you're buying the whole animal or some portion thereof all at once. You talk to the butcher. You work with them to get it packaged the way you, that you would like. How thick do you want your steaks cut? Do you want this cut or do you want it to go into ground beef? All of those questions that they'll work with you. And you make those choices, and then you pick up this large quantity of meat all at once. So if you have freezer space, that's, a, that's the most economical way to do it. 
it's, it's a good option. But you can do either one with us. Um, I think that's a good question because the idea of processing, when I think about the word processing just because it's become such a bad word in the food mm -hmm. industry, um, what that actually looks like. So it sounds like what you're saying is is with um, your your livestock, it's, it's really a, a very, in some ways, not a whole lot of processing except enough to cut it up in the ways that you want it. We often use processing um, as a synonym for butchering. Okay. Honestly, it's just kind of a softer word. But we take our animals in. They are butchered. They, um, we take them in in groups of two or three as opposed to hundreds at a time. So it's a very, again, a very humane scale. The people who butcher the animals are professionals. They do it quickly and as, as efficiently and as pain, painlessly as possible, not only for the good of the animals, but it's just a good business decision because when animals are stressed, hormones are released into their body that affect the taste and the quality of the meat. So our animals are, are handled with care all the way through that butchering process. Okay. Other questions? It's oftentimes where you hear people talk about like harvesting livestock as opposed to slaughtering. Right. It's easier. Far words. Farmers, farmers would just say, oh, you were going to slaughter a pig. <laughs> I had a question in regard to what you had just said about um, stress hormones produced by animals. Um, we've been talking about this a lot in the biology department recently about cortisol. Cortisol is a stress ho hormone. So when eggs say they're cage free, um, we know that that's kind of an uh, ambiguous term, that it could Very be for ambiguous. five minutes they're out of their cage, and then we call it cage-free, so that a lot of times cage-free animals are in high-stress environments. Uh, we were hypothesizing that cortisol produced by the chickens is passed on to the eggs so that eggs would have a high amount of cortisol in them, both conventional and possibly many cage-free. Do you agree with that? I am not a biologist. Um, so I can't answer the question about that particular hormone. Um, I will agree that often when you see terms like cage-free or free-range, they are very fuzzy. Um, I, again, Michael Pollan is, talks about how you know cage-free or cage-free eggs, you know, means it's a vacation option, not necessarily a lifestyle for the chickens. Um, I know on our farm, it's a lifestyle. They don't, they don't have cages. They have a hoop that they can go into for shelter. That's where they get fed. That's where they roost at night. But they are completely free range. So, and we often get told that our eggs are the best people have ever tasted. So I'm not making any, um, any claims as to the, the cortisol levels, but I know they're really great. <laughs> the best thing to do would be to try it, right? To run your own experiment. Take some cage-free eggs from, from the store. Get some eggs from a farm where you can see that the, the, the birds are, are pastured or free-range um, and taste the difference. One of the things that I found with the um, CSA where I get my eggs from, and it was the coolest thing the first time I did it, and I think this is the cool thing about trying these things, all these homework assignments that you're giving the audience. I think it's really cool to really try um, food. And, and I don't mean food that comes out of a box or a package, but what does it look like before that even happens to it? So when I started getting my eggs from the CSA, I opened up my egg box, and some were little, some were ginormous, some were medium-sized, and it was just such a cool thing. Some were kind of speckled, and it was just this whole different thing that kind of really just reminded me of nature and not this thing where all the eggs look exactly the same, 
all the tomatoes look exactly the same. In fact, I get some big tomatoes, some little ones. Some are kind of funky looking, but they still taste good, right? But, but I think it's such a different experience when you're able to see food in its natural state as opposed to this. It's almost like made up. It's like Hollywood when you go to the grocery store, right? The, the apples are sitting Special there effects department. <laughs> yeah, but it's so not real. It's interesting. I, I think that's a good point to try them. And the eggs are completely different. Yeah, and <clears throat> just on, on the eggs standpoint, I mean, and when you crack one open, it's like, wow, this is like really orange. Yeah. I've they can, had, okay. they can uh, poultry manufacturers, <laughs> poultry producers, um, can make the yolk whatever color they want based on what they feed. Mm-hmm. Um, so somewhere this pale yellow yolk has become the epitome of what an egg is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. if you got Beth's eggs or some from our learning center or somewhere um, the, the animals were, were free range, you'd see that it looks a little different and tastes dramatically different. Mm-hmm. I've actually had people email me pictures of an egg that they cracked saying, this color is is weird. Is this egg okay? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Taste it. It'll be fine. Are there other questions? Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> It's really just the breed of chicken. Um, there are some breeds will lay white eggs, some breeds will lay brown eggs, some some breeds will even lay sort of a greenish egg. Um, breed, difference in breed of chicken. Um, as far as the difference in sizes, it has most to do with the age of the chicken. The younger the chickens are, the smaller the eggs, and as they get older, they'll, they'll get larger until finally the production tapers off as they essentially hit menopause and stop producing. Um, so there's variation. And some farms will grade their eggs, so they're, you, know, you get a pretty standard box. Although for color, it, you know, we, because we have a really mixed flock, we have all different shades of brown and some greens. So it is pretty interesting when you open the package. More questions brewing. Thank you to um, both of you for sharing your morning and afternoon with us. Um, I would like to ask you to talk a little bit more about the um, politics of food and what you've seen from your own advocacy and uh, learning about growing food the way that you do versus conventionally. How, How much impact can our choices have as far as the politics of food are behind it and what else where else should we be going to learn about those kinds of impacts? So if I choose to eat organically, how much is that one individual choice making a difference? If you can speak to that, um, either anecdotally or what you've learned from your own experiences. Um, And then how much more should we be considering this from a democratic political issue? You're the advocate, I'll let you go first. Um, I am a firm believer that None of us can do anything but make our own choices, essentially. I mean, that, that's where, it, 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 let, me, let me rephrase it. Not that we can't do anything, but that's where it has to start. Each and every one of us has to make that choice and make that commitment. And, and all of those small choices do make a difference. Because there's a lot, lot more sustainable agriculture, urban agriculture, local agriculture now than there was 20 years ago. So, and that's because people make those choices. People vote with their forks. They vote with their wallets every day. My farm couldn't be in business if people weren't making those choices. 
and neither could Chris's farm or any of the other hundred farms that are operating in Illinois right now. Hundreds. Um, even if it's on a small scale, you know, that makes a difference. As far as larger macro scale differences, definitely, you know, the more you get involved with farms, the more you'll become aware of, of those topics like the FSMA. You know, that, that we, we regularly will update our members and ask them, you know, hey, here's something important. Get, if you get a chance, take a look at it. Make your voice heard. Um, so get involved with the farm. Get involved with the Illinois Stewardship Coalition is another great resource for political advocacy around local and sustainable foods. I would very strongly recommend joining that. Um, that's, that's a group that we're closely involved with. There are lots of groups like the Food Animal Concerns Trust, um, Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, Angelic Organic Learning Center, lots of resources out there for finding how you can get more engaged civically in addition to just making the choices personally. Um, I'll speak more anecdotally. Um, <clears throat> from, a, from a macro societal impact, I will be honest, it's really, really, really hard. The, the chips are definitely stacked against some of the smaller growers. Um, you know, if, if, if we could change our culture of convenience, um, that would help, but that's a dramatic cultural change. Um, and changing a lot of the way that conventional or large agricultural systems, they're, they're pretty firmly entrenched. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean they can't be changed. It's just harder and takes a lot more time by doing a lot of the things that Beth talks about. Um, from a more micro societal level, all of you are here for one reason. I'm, guess, I'm guessing that your teacher, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm guessing your teacher didn't tell you that you had to come here. You came here because you're either concerned, interested, um, something made you gravitate to coming and spending an hour of your time right around lunch um, to hear Beth and I and, and Tamara talk. I will guarantee you if, you, if you get involved with a farm, if you, and do that on whatever level you're comfortable with, whether that's in joining them as a CSA or, <clears throat> or really just going out and visiting a farm, if you get involved in a farm or spend any portion of your time with a farm or with a farmer, your life will be more rich because of it. I promise. I promise your life will be more rich if you get involved um, with a local farmer, a local farm. Trust me, it'll happen. So that's one small micro thing that can change your life, that can make a difference. So. I think we have one last question here. Hello. Um, thank you for your time today. Sure. Uh, this is kind of a vague question, but I was wondering how you guys feel about uh, vertical farms, since I know that's kind of a emerging technology or trend in this field. 
My familiarity with vertical farms really comes from the Museum of Science and Industry exhibit I saw a couple of months ago, which was really cool. Um, I haven't done any serious research on it just because it's a little bit outside of our um, outside of our wheelhouse, so to speak. But I think it's fantastic. I think the more that people can produce food locally, and that's certainly a, a super micro-local sort of thing if, if it's happening you know, in an urban area. Um, I, I think it has a lot of really excellent potential. I'd love to see, I'd, I'd love to learn more about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not super fluent in, in vertical agriculture. Um, but I think Beth and I kind of share the same sentiment when it comes to it. You know, I, I, I go and, and talk um, to groups occasionally, a fair amount of time, um, about the farm um, or present for whatever things. And, and oftentimes people are like, so what do you think of this? What do you think of, what do you think of, um, of raising chickens in, in Chicago? What do you think of this part of permaculture? Great. <laughs> um, you know, it's, that's fantastic. Um, you know, anything, anything you can do that will get you closer to your food source or um, will help to eradicate food deserts, will help to get people connected to what they're putting in their body, that's fantastic. You know, it's hard to do in the city of Chicago. You can't just raise five city blocks and throw down a garden. That's hard. Um, so somewhere people have become really, really innovative. And that's one thing that farmers are really good at too, is innovating. Um, so that's great. You know, anything, again, anything to connect people with food and what they're eating is good. One last point to be made, just on that issue, just so that people know, um, when, you when you think about urban agriculture, or vertical agriculture, or aquaponics, some of these other things, hydroponics that people are doing, particularly in urban, urban environments, the great thing is that in Chicago with um, the new mayor, I don't know how long ago the laws have changed, but the laws have really been loosened so that people can um, practice more of these things and to, to allow for urban agriculture. And, and I bring that up just like I, I, I selected the Chipotle video to show that it's not just farmers anymore, which is a good thing. So when policymakers who typically, you know, don't connect in the same way with farmers or care about organics or whatever, or when big corporations are sort of jumping into the ball game, I think that's a sign that, that things are happening, not always exactly how we want it, but that we're talking about it and there's conversation. So you could actually, anybody can have chickens now in the city of Chicago, which is great, that wasn't possible before. Um, anyone can have a garden. They can't tell you you can't have a garden or you can't have chickens. There are some laws about um, agriculture being close to factories, and that's just because they aren't sure what's in the ground, which is a whole other issue. Um, but, but that just kind of shows the way in which people are really thinking about, like you said, these little things are sort of awakening us to what is really um, best for us. So good question. Can you explain the difference between how you raise your animals and the conventional, in the industrial system? Sure. Um, I'm assuming that's me. Well, you guys raise animals too. But I think you're more the expert when it comes to this. Very briefly, um, the way we raise our animals that differs from the conventional system is we don't raise them in a factory, uh, to be kind of flip about it. Um, our animals are on pasture. They are fed locally grown grains. They graze. They move around. They're not confined to a barn or a building. We don't have manure 
issues because it gets spread on the field. That's what animals do. So in, in a factory farm, in a confinement feedlot, the animals are raised for the convenience of the operator. Um, on a farm like ours, the animals are raised to respect their nature and to give them the best quality of life possible. We don't use drugs or hormones. We like to say that our animals have terrific lives with one bad day. And you know, I, I totally respect people who are vegetarian for, for moral reasons and, and for ethical reasons. But I, when people say to me, how can you eat animals that you've raised? I've really come to ask, or to, to reply, I don't like to eat animals that I didn't raise. Because I know how my animals were treated. And I know that they were raised with respect and in good conditions. Other questions? I know you mentioned that you could talk about the uh, Food Safety and Modernization Act for quite some time or the food bill, but is there anything, you were talking about how the deck is uh, stacked in the favor of uh, commercial and industrialized food. Can you just say a little bit about you know, why it's so much more expensive for high quality food such as yours? In relation to the FSMA or just in general? Yeah, like food subsidies and the farm bill and... and um, we've got three minutes left. <laughs> Chris, you want to jump on that one? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> um, difficult to answer in a, in a short time frame. Um, but the Farm Bill allows for subsidies for a lot of corn and grain producers uh, that essentially artificially deflates or artificially lowers the market value of their crop um, so that it can be purchased. Corn is made almost, geez, I'll just throw a number out, uh, an artificial number. Um, probably close to 50% of the food that you eat has some sort of corn in it, whether it's high fructose corn syrup, whether it's um, blended corn. I mean, corn's just used for everything. We've taken it um, from a crop or a grain that was used primarily for, for livestock feeding to incorporating it to make fuel, to make clothing, to make f other foods, to make additives, to make preservatives. Um, and so because it is so incredibly... Um, intertwined in our economy. Uh, the government feels the need to keep that, that price at which people have to pay for it significantly low um, because they see a lot of added benefits for it. Um, there is no subsidy whatsoever for an organic farm. It's actually pretty expensive to be certified organic. We spent well over $30,000 to be certified organic. Um, and so there's no subsidy for that. There's no subsidy for um, for growing things and having a CSA, whether it's a livestock or meat CSA or a vegetable CSA. It's almost like the scales are tipped in the wrong way. <laughs> um, as, far as, the, as far as the FMSA or FSMA, um, I would say that I would echo Beth's comments that there is a tremendous amount of um, of cost and financial expense that it will cost a lot of small farms um, if the bill is to pass in the current form that it is right now. Things that, I mean, if you read into it, if you have the time, you would look at it and be like, hmm, that that's, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, from wildlife intrusion into your crops 
um, to pest pressure, to how, just how everything should be managed. There would be a tremendous amount of infrastructure that a lot of, a lot of small farmers would need to implement um, in order to come in line with the FSMA. Um, and a lot of organic farming, um, they just, they don't have that wealth. They don't have that, that, that um, it's not like a corn grower who has 10,000 fields or 10,000 acres of corn um, and is doing all right for themselves. A lot of people who farm organically don't have that type of capital just sitting around. So it means they have to take a loan out if they want to continue their business, if they want to have a livelihood. And that's tough. That's real tough. Thank you. How much of the like crops uh, go to waste without the fertilizer? Like, do you guys end up throwing a lot of like vegetables and meat away without having any protection on it? Like, um, so I guess I will answer for the yeah, for like vegetables pesticide, first. Pesticide, like the pesticide spray. Sure, sure. Um, Yes, I mean, there, there are bad fruits or bad crops that get culled. Um, essentially, they get composted, though. So whereas you could think, yeah, they get wasted, they're thrown away, they actually get added back into the soil. They get added back into our compost um, pile, which we have with 30-plus acres, we have pretty, pretty large compost piles and a lot of manure that we need. Um, so what it is that doesn't get fed to nourish our shareholders nourishes our land. Um, or nourishes some of our livestock. I mean, we've got some pigs that um, are very, very happy with some of the seconds and some of the vegetables that don't meet our current standards for our shareholders. They're okay with it. They don't mind them. I think, I think we have time for one last question. Time is sort of flying by. Hi, I was just wondering if you can explain the process involved in getting certified organic and the time frame. Um... Yes. Um, so the the process one is they it took us about a hundred and thirty man hours to put together and compile all of the paperwork that is needed for the certification, all the records that they need for the certification. Um, so you put all of those records together, and then an auditor comes out. Um, and audits your farm, makes sure that all of the inputs are what you say they are and that they have all of the information listed. Then they take that information back. And when the auditor comes out, um, initially it's about a $5,000 cost, I believe, if I can recall correctly from when we first certified. Um, so then the auditor takes all that information back and it gets reviewed and then anything that they have a question about or any way that... Um, your records are not compiled in the way that they would ideally like them compiled, you need to change them and address it. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of that cost um, is from the man hours that you need to, to spend in order to compile all the information that they need. Any input that you have, they need to know what the input is, whether it's you know, making sure that there's no synthetic, it needs to be, it needs to be natural or naturally occurring components or, or um, compounds. Um, what it is, what you use it for, when you put it in, where'd you put it in? Did you put it in this field, this field, this field? When did you do it? How about cultivating? When did you cultivate? When did you put manure on the field? Um, when you sprayed? When you sprayed for pests? When did you spray? What did you spray? How much did you spray? Um, so just a, a tremendous amount of information that needs to be compiled and kept up to date day by day, month by month, year over year. 
it's not something that you get certified and you're good to go. You certify every single year. Um, no different than GAP certification, which if you guys um, have heard of GAP, which is good agricultural practices, again, another certification that is pinching some smaller farms because it's very, very expensive. Um, and it's something that you certify year over year over year over year. So. One last thing, Chris and Beth, just as we close. Um, besides the food just tasting better, and I happen to know because I actually order from a, a CSA, so the produce certainly does taste different. And besides from the fact that if you think pesticides are a problem, it's much healthier, what's sustainable about the way in which you farm? Why is that better for us, not necessarily just as individuals, but as a whole, a whole system, a whole planet? You can go first. Um, <laughs> I think that it's more sustainable because it's more connected. Um, it's more connected to where your food is coming from. It's more connected to the people who are raising your food. So it's, you know, and you can take personal responsibility for how your food is produced. Um, I, I would agree from the community building standpoint that um, if you know your farmer, that, that that adds tremendous value and sustainability to not only that community, but also to that farm. From an ecological standpoint, um, vegetables um, growing conventionally and knifing in ammonia into the ground, um, you could say it's sustainable because you can just keep doing it year over year over year over year over year. Uh, there's a cost to the environment to, to synthetically produce it. And quite frankly, there's a cost to the soil life when you produce it. Um, that level of ammonia that gets that gets knifed in so that the crops can grow, um, the plants can appreciate the the nitrogen that uh, is is produced. Um, earthworms, not so much, and other kind of microbacteria, microbacteria, not so much. Um, and those are all the things that really create healthy, fertile soil that um, that isn't tarnished in gray. <laughs> they, they, they create the difference, if I can put it this way, they create the difference between soil and dirt, where soil is alive, where soil is teeming with healthy bacteria and, and microorganisms and earthworms and bugs and um, all of the things that when you were probably six years old you thought were gross and disgusting. The soil is teeming with that type of stuff. Dirt's dead. Thank you both for being here. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you all for coming. As you all are leaving, there are two tables set up with information about both of the farms, Cedar Valley Sustainable Farm and also Angelic Organics. Thanks. Have a good afternoon.